Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When you recall last week, we saw that Martin Luther threw up his hands when it came to Zechariah 14 and said, I'm just not sure what's going on here. As we look at the last half of Zechariah 14, you see things really don't get much clearer. There's a lot going on in the last half of this oracle. We start with uh, eyeballs rotting and tongues rotting in their mouths, and we end with some notes about bells on horses and pots. And you wonder what is going on. Sometimes prophetic books in Scripture, when they end, they end in pretty incredible ways. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, when you get to the final words of the book of Ezekiel, you will have goosebumps when you read them. Here, as we get to the end of the book of Zechariah, I'm not sure if a a note about traitors in the house of the Lord is going to have a similar effect. And yet, maybe it should. If we understood the significance of what we've just read then I think it would. I'm not going to say right now, let's dive in at the deep end. We already dove in at the deep end. We're just still in the deep end right now. So so bear with me here. We're not going to exhaust the mysteries of this chapter by any means, but we want to grasp the big picture and understand what's going on here as best we can. So remember, at the beginning of Zechariah 14, we saw that what's being prophesied here is the final big event in redemptive history. It's the return of Jesus Christ. Now, in the first half of the chapter, we see the way that Christ's return brings about the salvation of his beleaguered people. But in the last half, we see how the return of Christ in power establishes justice and establishes the right order of all creation. That's what we see in the vision that we're looking at here. This is about God defeating his enemies and establishing order, making the world what it was meant to be. And the instruments that he uses are interesting to see. In the first section there, the first two paragraphs of our text, we go back in time a little bit, back to the battle that we already know the outcome of. We've already seen that there's a great battle, that God fights on behalf of his people and is victorious, and now Jerusalem will dwell in security. But now we go back again, and we see that conflict once again, but we see it, as it were, from the other side. We see the effects of God's power on those who have opposed him, and we see, as it were, the weapons of his warfare in this final battle. What's happening here, as our text says in verse 12, is God defeating all the peoples that wage war on Jerusalem. And the the instruments of his warfare are plague and panic and plunder. Now, as we read the description and as you look over those words in your mind, these are horrific images. The idea of of people in their, their bodily existence, in their flesh, while they're still standing, beginning to rot, is horrifying to contemplate. The panic that seizes them and turns former allies against one another is also a terrible thing to see 
the plunder that takes place. So ironic that at the beginning of the chapter, we see the nations plundering the people of God, but now things have turned and all that treasure is being gathered and brought in. Plunder in this great victory of God. It's interesting as you reflect on these images and you ask yourself, what's going on here? Why these images? Why these weapons? Zechariah here is doing something that we've already observed in the same way that he takes all of the prophetic images that all of the Old Testament prophets have have given over time and kind of weaves them all in in this final epic battle. He's also taking the history of the people of Israel and he's using the events of that history to illustrate what is to come. If you've read the Old Testament, you already know that the God of Israel defeats armies who come up against Jerusalem by sending plague into the armies and devastating them. You already know that he sows panic in the camp of his enemies so that rather than him having to struggle against them, they fight against one another. So you know already that he defeats his enemies, as it were, by turning the very nature of things against them. And you already know that he does it by turning them against one another. Zechariah is simply saying, in the way that we've seen him do it before, on a a vaster scale, on a more epic scale, he will fight this final battle in that same way. It is fascinating to me, though, to see the way here that we glimpse, like nature itself, rising up against God's enemies. You see it in that battle section in the first two paragraphs, mainly through plague. Like the idea that you go off in your strength, you go off armed for battle, and then before you can even land a blow against your enemy, your own body begins to fail. That even in the midst of life, you find yourself overcome by death. You didn't even get to, to, to battle before, as it were, like your own body began to fight against you. And of course, you see in the latter half, the rain does the same thing. That those who stand up in opposition to God get no rain. Which is fascinating, because Jesus in the Beatitudes, in the book of Matthew, which is the book we'll be studying after we finish Zechariah, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's the way it is now in this fallen world. But Zechariah sees a day when that reality will no longer prevail, when it will no longer rain on the just and on the unjust equally, when those who are in opposition to God will have nature itself refuse to serve them, which is a fascinating thing to see. Now, as we interpret these images Just another reminder about how we're doing it. Like you can see Zechariah is using the history, the literal things that happens in the life of Israel. And he's using also the prophetic utterances that other prophets have used as well. He's drawing on all of those things because he stands chronologically at the end of both of those lines. Right? He is prophesying at what you might think of as the end of Old Testament history, and he's prophesying at the end of this line of Old Testament prophets. Zechariah 
is, we believe, the last of the Old Testament prophets to actually be killed for his work of prophecy. And drawing on all of those things, God speaking through him gives us these images. But we understand that we look for a spiritual interpretation to these things, not merely a physical one. Real events, but being described here in spiritual and in symbolic terms, not in literal ones. So when we look for their fulfillment, we must look spiritually. Now, as we do this, the need for that kind of spiritual interpretation becomes really obvious as we proceed to our third paragraph. That's the paragraph where We hear about the Feast of Booths and the rain that won't come down on those who don't come to the Feast of Booths. Uh, These are people described as survivors of the plague, which would make them survivors of that final judgment. But now we learn that they are worshiping the king. They are keeping the the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And... uh, We learn in verse 19, there will be punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, reading this, some interpreters, because they they think it has to be literal, have looked for these events to be literally fulfilled. They've told themselves that when Christ returns, he'll set up a temporary political kingdom that will rule over all of the other kingdoms by a kind of force, the force of nature, it would seem. And if anyone gets out of line, then they'll be punished. But then ultimately, they will all get out of line, and there'll be a second battle to end all battles. And then that will usher in the spiritual, not the second physical kingdom, It gets really complicated, really complicated that if you go down that path, you end up creating multitudes of charts to explain how it all fits together like clockwork, only it typically doesn't. If you're familiar with the principle of Occam's razor, you know that the simplest explanations are usually the best. And as we look for a spiritual fulfillment of these things, there are explanations that suggest themselves that don't need quite so many charts we take this to be a physical description in signs of a spiritual reality, then we don't need to multiply kingdoms or multiply returns of Christ or any of that. Instead, just consider this. Why the Feast of Booths? Why is the Feast of Booths specifically the one that is mentioned here? What's so important about that feast? Now, I know we've covered a lot of ground, but if, if you think about it, you might remember the Feast of Booths has come up before in our study of post-exile prophecy. There's a significance to this feast. This is the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. It commemorates Israel's deliverance out of Egypt into a wilderness where God sustained them and where his presence was centered in a tent, in a tabernacle. And so forever after, when people celebrated this feast, they would create little tents for themselves, little tabernacles to dwell in for the period of several days, or seven days, and then a final eighth day. This is uh, the significance of why Peter, when uh, he sees Jesus with uh, Moses and Elijah, and he thinks to himself, hey, this is cool, I should make some booths, I should make some tents for us to dwell in. It's a connection to this feast here, but we've seen other connections. Remember when we went through the the oracles of Haggai? The second oracle of Haggai actually is given on the last day of the Feast of Booths. 
That is the oracle. Haggai 2.7 says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now that sounds a lot like things we just read. A treasure being brought in, nations being gathered together, house filled with glory. That oracle took place on the Feast of Booths. And when we saw that, we asked, well, what's the significance of that feast to people who are rebuilding the temple? And the significance is it was at the end of the Feast of Booths that Solomon's temple was dedicated. So the temple, which was devoted to God's presence among his people, was dedicated during the feast, which was devoted to God's presence among his people. Now a spiritual temple is reconstituted as Christ comes again and is is centered in his presence in Jerusalem and in that spiritual temple. And now we're told all the nations will come to worship him on the day that is dedicated to God dwelling among his people. This is a spiritual fulfillment of these prophecies. Why Egypt? Why Egypt in particular is mentioned here? Well, because Egypt was the land of bondage. Literally the land of bondage. But also, like Babylon, Egypt came to become a symbol for bondage. So that in the New Testament, Egypt is seen as the spiritual bondage out of which Christ delivers us. Christ, a better mediator than Moses, who delivered the people from that physical bondage. So you see, there is a connection here as well, but it's a spiritual one. That in putting the world right, there will no longer be any nations in opposition to the Lord. Instead, all the world will be properly oriented towards the worship of its Creator. I mean, at the very least... And obviously, there's more to be exhausted here, more details to to ring out. But at the very least, the point is that to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess the lordship of King Jesus. Those who have loved him will rejoice in their salvation. And those who have rejected him will acknowledge the truth of his lordship and the justice of his punishments. It brings us to the last section, which can seem really anticlimactic, because we've seen all of this kind of great apocalyptic stuff, and then we get some notes, as I said, about the decoration of horses' bells, the sanctity of cooking pots, and the end of trade in the temple. It seems like a minor key ending to this major key book, but I think this is actually the most important moment in this vision. After all, the destruction After all the conquest, there is a transformation of everyday life that we see taking place here. And to understand the importance of it, we have to ask ourselves, what is inscribed on the bells? What is inscribed on the bells of the horses? A name. Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord, literally holy to Yahweh. Where have we seen this before? Well, these are the words that were inscribed on the forehead of the high priest Aaron when he was instituted. Holy to Yahweh, set apart, sanctified, holy to the true God. These words that were on the head of the high priest, which we re-encountered 
when we saw the high priest Joshua in the night visions reappear here, not on the head of a high priest, but, but on the bell around the neck of a horse. And what's that all about? Well, to understand it, we need a, a really quick survey of these marks or inscriptions on the forehead that we find in Scripture. So let's dive in. So this is an a inscription, we're told here, but the word that's often used for this is a mark or a seal. And there's a history of marks and seals in the Old Testament and in the New that we need to be familiar with to understand what's going on. We could go back, if we wanted to find kind of a starting point for this, to Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, as the people of Israel are going off into exile, Ezekiel sees an interesting prophecy. They're going off to Babylon, and obviously they're concerned about whether or not they'll make it out, whether or not they will survive. Will they be uh, corrupted by the religion of the Babylonians? But in Ezekiel 9, God gives a command to, quote, put a mark on the foreheads of his faithful people. We're told that judgment will fall on the rest, but all those who have the mark or the seal on their foreheads will be saved. Everyone who possesses the mark on his forehead, the judgment will pass over him. In Ezekiel 9, that mark, the word for the mark is tav, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when it's transliterated, it looks like a T or it looks like an X. The same letter in Phoenician was an X, and that's what actually gave us our letter T eventually over the generations. So the tav, the mark, or the seal, And specifically, this mark is a mark of a name. So the thing that is being marked or sealed is being sealed with the name of the one to whom it belongs. The mark in Ezekiel 9 seals the people of God with the name of God, the same way that the priest of God was sealed with the name of God on his forehead. Holy to the Lord. If you go to Zechariah chapter 3, as I mentioned already, during the night visions, when the high priest Joshua appears in the visions before the angel of the Lord, when the priest who is filthy is cleansed, we see once again the appearance of this inscription. He's given a new headdress, and the headdress has a stone on it, and the stone is inscribed by the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ, who says... This is chapter 3, verse 9. I will engrave its inscription and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So I will engrave its inscription, holy to Yahweh. And in that act, I will take away the sins of the land in a single day. So receiving the mark, judgment passes over. Receiving the mark, sins are forgiven and we are cleansed. The mark is his name, and those who receive his name are cleansed of their sins and are preserved from judgment. Then we jump ahead to the book of Revelation. You're thinking, oh, the good stuff. Yes, tell us more. But not Revelation 13 yet, Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, this appears again. There's an angel described, and and he's described as bearing, quote, the seal of the living God. And he says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the judgment that's coming has to wait 
until those who will be preserved from it have been sealed on their foreheads in exactly the same way that those in Ezekiel 9 were sealed. Those who are sealed with the name of God will be saved. Now we can go to Revelation 13. And and it's ironic because this is honestly the only mention of these forehead seals that most of us are familiar with. When you start talking about receiving a mark on your forehead, what do you think about? You don't think about Jesus. You think about the beast, the mark of the beast. And in Revelation 13, we find it here. Those who worship the beast receive his mark in their foreheads. And everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain worships the beast and receives the mark of the beast. And in the realm of the beast, where the beast rules and reigns, if you don't have the mark of the beast on your forehead, you can't buy or sell because the beast is in charge. And in order to, to, to live in his realm, you must serve and worship him. And everybody does. Everybody does. Everybody gets the mark of the beast except those who are marked, sealed by the name of the Lamb. Because they've already been sealed. So the mark of the beast that we talk so much about seals the worshipers of the beast in his name. And only the worshipers of the Lamb are immune to this because they're already sealed with the name of the Lamb. Now, by the way, as you hear all of this and you start processing this, I hope you're making some connections and maybe even some realizations at this moment. It should be clear by now that the mark of the beast is not a microchip that the government is going to secretly implant inside you so that they can track you. Because everybody receives the mark of the beast who worships the beast. And the only people who don't worship the beast are those who worship the lamb, who are holy to Yahweh. And it should be obvious to you as well at this point that the mark of the beast is not a vaccination shot that you receive either. You say, well, don't get into politics now. Fine. I'm getting into Bible here, and it disgusts and angers me when we twist God's word to mean something it doesn't, and apply it in ways that that, that are not what's being said by God's word. And when it comes to apocalyptic literature, most of what we hold to be self-evident is wrong because it does not come from an understanding of God's word. So it's not a microchip. It's not a vaccine. It's not the birthmark on Mikhail Gorbachev's head. It's none of those things. You cannot receive the mark of the beast accidentally. You don't accidentally wake up one morning, look in the mirror and say, oh no, it says beast on my head. That's not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is worshiping the beast. Those who worship him are sealed with his name. Who worships the beast? Who receives the mark of the beast? Everyone who doesn't worship the lamb. Either you're sealed with the mark of the lamb or you're sealed with the mark of the beast. There is no third way. 
So in Zechariah 14, you're seeing a, a vision of the triumph of God. His triumph is complete. Every knee has bowed, every tongue confessed. All the nations worship him at the festival of booths. And it turns out that if you are sealed with the name of the beast, you're protected from nothing. Remember, the the purpose of being sealed is to be preserved from judgment. The purpose of being sealed is to be protected by the name of the God who rules and reigns. And the beast rules nothing. It turns out that to worship and serve him avails you nothing at all. In his pride, the beast says, I rule the world. Then without my mark, you can't buy or sell. But the beast is guilty of that greatest of all faults. He's brought a knife to a gunfight. God says, no, I rule the world. And without my mark, you don't get rain. You don't get rain. Commerce, don't worry about it. There are no traitors in my temple. That's done with. That's over. This place is purified and holy. And all those who enter it have my name upon them, are sealed with my name. So the result is what we see here, which is that everything is holy. It's not just the people who are sealed with the name of the Lord. The bells on the horses are too. It's not just the sacred vessels in the temple that are appropriate for sacrifice. Now all the pots are good for sacrifice. Everything, the mundane objects of reality have become holy because God rules and reigns over everything down to the the molecular structure of it all. It is all holy to the Lord. In the early Jewish church, people started making connections when they thought about this Old Testament stuff about being marked on the forehead. And then they start reading John's revelation and and this language turns up again. And they started thinking about that mark or or in Hebrew, that tav. And of course, they were Hellenistic, right? They spoke uh, and, and read Greek. And so in order to kind of see things the way they did, don't think Hebrew alphabet, you're like, you're safe, I wasn't. Think more Greek, like this look, would look like a T or it would look like an X. And they said, wait a second, you know what a T looks like? It looks like a cross. You know what an X looks like? It looks like the, the first letter in the name of Christ, which was represented by them with what would look like to us in English an X and a P, which is a chi in a row, pronounced Christ. And so they saw in the mark on the forehead, literally the name of God the name of God marked on the foreheads of the people of God. And so they naturally associated this mark on the forehead with baptism, which makes sense because in baptism, we baptize in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And baptism is a sign of the cleansing that that seal gives and of the the sealing gift of the Holy Spirit. So one scholar notes, sealing and baptism in the New Testament both refer to a designation of the believer as the property of God or Christ. Or to put it another way, as John says in Revelation 22, as we saw last week, they shall see his face and his name shall be written on their foreheads. The very beginning of our study of Zechariah back in January, I said that in 
the book of Zechariah, we have the gospel, but, but the gospel seen through a glass darkly. That not everything that, that we encounter in Zechariah is going to be immediate or clear, but if we look hard enough, we will see that Zechariah is proclaiming the gospel which emerged and became clear in the New Testament. He stands at the end of the prophetic line, at the end of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. He brings all those themes and images together. But he does it in order to point to the future, to point to the coming of Christ, who is the fulfillment of all those ancient promises. And now we look back at all this through the lens of Christ, and the glass is no longer dark. We look back now and we can see Christ, even in these seemingly cryptic prophecies. As we look, we see that those who bear the mark of the Holy One, of the Lamb, those who bear the name of Christ, those who worship and serve our Lord Jesus, will endure their testing in this life and will be saved. Those who turn away from Him and worship the beast will receive divine justice. The world will be remade as a holy creation and filled with the presence of the Holy One of Israel. So as we leave Zechariah, when we reflect on what we've seen here, one thing to take away is to reflect on the reality of this seal. Oversimplifying a little bit, but think of the mark that we've been talking about as the seal of the Spirit. It's the guarantee that those promises made to you will be fulfilled. And when you think about that seal of the Spirit, when you think about God's promises, I want you to picture it as the sign of baptism where the water is placed on the forehead as we seal a person in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think of that as the mark of the Lamb. And as you think and reflect on it, as you hear people say, as we sometimes do, remember your baptism, when you hear those words, what you should remember is not the moment in time when you were baptized. For some of you, that will be impossible to remember. You were too young. But remember what it pictured what it signified, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the guarantee that you would be spared judgment and that you would receive salvation and cling to that reality, holy to the Lord. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.